Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that your love never ceases. As we're going to look at the text today, we're reminded that true love only comes from you. For indeed, God is love. And the ramifications of that are enormous. And John tips his hat a bit as he elaborates on the nature of love and the implications for us as believers. And so, Father, guide us as we go to the text. Lord, uh, help us to focus on what you would have for us this morning as we dive into your precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to 1 John 4, verse 7. Along with being in the new building in three weeks, we will have completed our journey in 1 John as well, which is bittersweet. In one way, John, I've, this was said of John's gospel, but it can be said of the Johannine epistles. On one level, it's, it's very shallow. It's, it's, you could bathe a, a baby in that water. In another way, John is so deep, an elephant can swim in it. <laughs> And I hope as we've been journeying through this, there's times when you, you, oh, that's great. And then other times it's, woo, that is heavy. It's deep. It's complex, yet very profound. So we're in 1 John 4, verse 7. This is that time of the year when there are political signs everywhere. Is there not? <clears throat> Some of you are smiling. Some of you have smoke coming out of your ears. I know. It is that time of year. But you also see some signs that are and have been up for some time. They, they seek to define love. And those signs vary, but the messages are these. Love is love. Love lives here. Love wins. Love has no limits. All you need is love. That sounds familiar. Uh, love is never wrong. So you see these signs and John is going to put some yard signs up today as well about love. <laughs> he has a few things to tell the church here in 1 John 4 as he seeks to define the biblical understanding of what is true love and what are the implications on us as followers of Jesus. In 1 John 4, through, we're going to go all the way to chapter 5, verse 4 today, it's I know, it's a bit of a blitzkrieg, so fasten your seatbelt. But it, so it, it's cohesive, and, and I wanted to look at it in its entirety because John is going to spend the first portion dealing what is the nature of love, its, its basis, the supreme example, as well as the spiritual obligations. And then he'll deal with the results of love in chapter 5, 1 through 4. So that's where we're headed. And we look at here at verse 7, Dear friends... So appropriate. You could, you could translate this as loved ones. That's literally how it's rendered, or beloved. John, you will use this term six times in this little letter. And the majority of them are directly linked with his command that we love one another. So when you see dear friends, get ready. John is practicing what he preaches, by the way. He says, those I love do not believe, or excuse me, let us love, I jumped up, verse seven. Let us love one another this is the command. Now, this is nothing new. He's shared this in the letter already. In fact, he's going to state it. We saw it three, two times in chapter 3. We're going to see it twice 
here in this section, a reminder that we're to love one another. The basis for it, though, he's going to elaborate here that he's not done elsewhere in the letter. He says, because love is from God. We look at the basis for love, and the first of these is that love is, originates from God himself. In other words, it's grounded in a doctrinal reality. It's the revelation of his character that he should show love. In fact, it says, John states, love is from God and everyone who loves has been fathered by God, and don't miss this, and knows God. Remember, we've talked about John is writing so their joy might be complete, so they might know that they are truly followers of him. And we've talked about righteous conduct, we've talked about a proper theology, and one of the third areas is loving one another, which he's already dealt with twice, and he's coming back to this. But he roots it even further in who God is. It's the character of God, God eternally giving of himself to others so that we can call him Father, so that we get to know him and understand that he is a God who loves. We have to be careful. There's a few, couple caveats here. Everyone who loves is not necessarily a child of God. <laughs> All we need to do is love one another. We have to be careful. In other words, the signs that say love is never wrong is an invalid statement. Love can be wrong. Because here in the text, it's rooted in knowing God. And earlier in, in 1 John, in chapter 3, it states, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another. They have to go hand in hand. There has to be the doctrinal rails up for the love. Otherwise, it's, it's free for all, and that is not necessarily true love, and that's a problem. So love can be wrong depending on the ultimate, the source. And true biblical love is not equivalent to willed altruism. It's, you can give everything you have to feeding the poor. You, you can give all of your time working down at Wheeler Mission or doing X, Y, Z. If it's not true love, it's meaningless. It has to originate from the Lord. In fact, non-Christians can be very loving. There's no doubt about that. They can demonstrate a, a true form of love, but the reason being is they're created in the image of God, but it's still tainted because they are fallen, all of us are fallen creatures. It's distracted or t uh, distorted from sin. Think about the fruit of the Spirit. You're given the Spirit upon confession in Christ. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, mentioned first. It, it, true love comes from the Lord, and it comes because we know Him, and they function in tandem. Both are an assurance of new birth. The ongoing activity of knowing and understanding God better will result in loving him more truly. You know God, you're gonna love him more. And I would argue, if you love God, the more you're gonna to want to get to know him. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3. You will be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and thus to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
So the first thing John says, the basis of our love is that God, from him comes love. But secondly, he states, notice what he says here in verse eight, the person who does not love does not know God because, and then here it is, God is love. Contrary to the popular signs that love is love, John says, no, 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 no. God is love. And we have to be careful. The grammatical construction is very clear. You cannot flip that. It cannot be love is God. If that's the case, we have pantheism. No, in fact, the construction is so, in the Greek text, indicate that this is God's essence. It is his nature that God is love. It stresses his personality to the fullest extent. We're not invalidating that God is holy or righteous. You can fill in the attributes. All aspects of God's nature belong together and are united in determining his action. And so we see here, God is love. D.A. Carson in the little book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, writes, all the manifestations of the love of God emerge out of this deep, more fundamental reality. Love is bound up in the very nature of God. This is where I might agree with the sign that says love wins if you're referring to about true biblical love. (laughs) Because an all-loving, all-powerful God means he will work against whatever is against his love. It will always be out of love. And we'll come back to that as we journey through this, the implications there. But the first sign then that John is posting in the yard is this, only God is completely loving. Try putting that out in your front yard, right? Only God is completely loving. He alone serves as the standard and the source of true love. Now, I don't know about you, but what peace and comfort to know that whatever comes our way, it has been filtered through the loving hands of the Lord. He can only act in accordance with his love. Even his discipline is performed in pure, unadulterated love. We also find great comfort and peace knowing that those are the same hands, those loving hands that embrace comfort and lead us. That's our God. It's why you can walk in the darkest valley and know God is love and he cares deeply. Reminded of the old hymn, those lyrics, oh, worship the king, all glorious above, oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. That's our Lord. And the basis for true love is rooted in who God is and what he does. But John's not done. In fact, the next two verses, the famous British minister from the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this is the two, well, he says, there is no greater theological statement in the whole Bible than these two verses. So let's look at them. By this, the love of God is revealed in us that God has sent his one and only son, you might have begotten son, into the world so that we may live through him In this is love, not that we have loved God, don't miss that, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. As John unpacks, this is the second part here, this supreme example of true love. He first states, God's love 
was costly. God's love was manifested in the incarnation, that is Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling among us, and in the atonement, Jesus taking on our sin as he bore that on the cross as he died for our sin. But in this, God has revealed his love to us. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You wanna know about the love? Let me, let me show you the Father. Hebrews 1, 1, 2, after God spoke long ago in various portion in various ways. I mean, think about the Old Testament. There's object lessons galore. There's visions, there's dreams. He says, in these days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he's appointed heir of all things through whom he created the world. And John says, this is costly love because God has revealed himself to us by sending his son to us is only begotten, he states. In fact, it's emphatic in the Greek. It's moved first, the only begotten son, this he has sent. It refers, the phrase here is not that Jesus is an offspring of God. It's why I think the Net Bible takes us the one and only. It's a bit of a better, well, it is a better rendering because the term there refers to his uniqueness, that his deity rather than his origin. And don't, don't you love the pronouns? Notice what the text says. His son. <laughs> it calls attention to the fellowship, the intimacy God and the, uh, the father and the son have with one another. John 15, Jesus states, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remember what John wrote earlier? Turn to chapter one. Just look what he stated here to his readers. Verse three of chapter one. What have we seen and heard we announce to you, referring to Christ, so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. The intimacy that the Godhead has has allowed us to enter into that fellowship. And I can't get my head around that. <laughs> Why? Simply because he loved us. He delights in bringing us into his fellowship. And John says, <laughs> no, no wonder John says later on, I write this because of the joy that comes from knowing this fellowship. Then in verse 10, it's costly because we're said the, the, the son was sent, verse 10, to be the atoning sacrifice, or you might have the 50 cent word propitiation, which means the turning away of the wrath of God because of the offering of Christ. It's the summary of the entire redemptive mission of Christ. Jesus' self-sacrifice for sin made full atonement for our sins, thus enabling God to pardon at his own cost the sins against him, self, of those who believe and to restore them to acceptance and fellowship with himself. Wow. That's love that wins. <laughs> the Puritan minister of the 1600s, John Owen, probably the most profound theologian Britain ever produced, states, we are never nearer to Christ when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. <laughs> he says here, it was costly but it also was undeserved. 
which is very clear in what John's stating here. Because you see this here, that we might live through him. The we is emphatic. It, it, it didn't originate with us, this love. In fact, he states that there, it's not that we have loved God, far from it. I mean, think about it. <laughs> we weren't naturally loving prior to salvation. Paul states in Ephesians 2, prior to salvation, we were children of disobedience, carrying out the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. It's he who took the initiative. God loves us, not because of our merit, but because of our need. In the joy of fellowship, a commentary on 1 John, Dwight Pentecost writes, the death of Jesus Christ did not change the heart of God as if one who hated us now loves us. Rather, it opened the floodgate so that the love of God for sinners could be poured out to them through Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Did you catch that? It's not that he hated us and wanted to bring us in. No, no, no. And so the floodgates could open to show the love he has for us. He sent his son, his only begotten. If we want to know what true love is, then we need to know ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, I, I don't think we'll ever appreciate the love of God until we know the blatant truth about ourselves apart from him and about his wondrous grace. We were not lovable. We were not teddy bears. <laughs> Far from it. it Look like a herd of jackals, right? We were enemies. We were not spiritually alive, we were dead. We were not servants of God, we were children of wrath. And so we got the one yard sign that John's put up and now he's got a second and that is our love can only originate from God's love. There can be no exceptions or definitions of true love which does not start, which does not flow from what God has accomplished. Love is not love. <laughs> Far from it. God is love. And in so doing, he has sacrificed his son and we certainly didn't deserve it. Friedrich Lehman writes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Words cannot capture this incredible love God has bestowed on us. And if your socks aren't rolling up and down, well, check your pulse. This is our God. And John, by the way, of anyone who should know about the love of God, I mean, he refers to himself in the fourth gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. That was out of arrogance. He was just marveling at God's grace and love in his life. And time and time again, John saw the love of the Lord being showered out through Christ upon those and consequently, based on all of this, John writes in verse 11, dear friends, there it is the last time, the sixth time he's referred to them as beloved. If God so loved us, and this is a first class condition, if God so loved us, and he did, then notice what John says. Then we ought to love one another. 
It's not up for negotiation. If God so loved us and he did, echoes John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is a direct application to John and what he's trying to make to the readers and thus he gets to this ought. It's not an external compulsion. It's an inner constraint of conscious obligation. It is the least we can do is to love one another. The gospel message is more than truth in other words, to be contemplated. He just went through the gospel message in verses nine and 10. It's more than just some wonderful little things that you can feel good about yourself and put on a plaque and and read your Reader's Digest. No, 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 there's far more than this. It, It requires a life that is transformed. I wrote down when we grasp just a glimpse of God's mercy and grace, his love for us, all our self-righteousness vanishes. I don't know how a narcissist can exist in the presence of God. (laughs) You can't. We begin to recognize that we are no better than anyone else. We also begin to see others through the Lord's lens. They, like us, are victims who've been terrorized, who have been shackled by sin. We no longer despise others, but we begin to pity them and we pray for them. This is why Jesus stated in the upper room those final words as he knows full well he's going to the cross, that all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Why? Because you can't abide, Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. You cannot abide in this if you're not loving because the Lord is love and it's expected of his followers. You you, you cannot separate the two. And with that, you wanna know the Lord? Oh, I just wanna know him? Then great, love one another. That, yes, being in the word, yes, being in prayer, yes, being in fellowship, But one of the ways to really know God is loving one another. Why? (laughs) Because it's all part of this intimacy that the Lord has brought us into. It's not through some mystical vision that we come to know God, but it's because he's revealed himself through Christ and the experience of his love in Christian relationships. One commentator writes, it is in the practice of love for one another that the reality of love for God will be tested, strengthened, and purified. This is why John writes, look at verse 13, by this we know that we reside in him and he in us, that he's given us the spirit. And earlier in verse 12, it's so that this love is perfected. Not that we're referring to reaching a complete 100% sanctification, this side of eternity. That's not what he's talking about. It is the intended goal in believers that they live through the consistent practice of loving one another, that seeing God's love perfected in us. And that's why he says in verse 13, by this we know, that is the perfection, that we reside in God and that he's given us the spirit. By the way, I hope you see the role of the Trinity spelled out here. (laughs) 
<laughs> There's got the Spirit, we've got the Son and the Father, and in that we have been brought into this. He closes this section here, and he says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, and don't miss this last phrase, to be the Savior of the world. That phrase occurs only in one other location in the entire New Testament. It's found in John 4. We've got a Samaritan woman on the outcast of society. She's drawing water in the middle of the day. You don't draw water, you draw water in the middle of the day unless you're a woman of ill repute. And Jesus told the disciples, I must go through Samaria. They said, we don't go through Samaria. We're Jews, because the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. And Jesus said, no, no. They got to, the Samaritan woman and the Samaritans began to understand this love of God that has been manifested to them through Christ. I've got a video clip I want you to see, I think captures that moment in John chapter four. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. The woman said, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for water? Jesus replied, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. The book of John, chapter four. They say, your life could change in an instant. And mine did when a Jewish man asked me, a Samaritan, for a drink. I have been drinking from the same well for more years than I could count. For me, change seemed impossible. I didn't even want it. But the well always left me thirsty. So I came back to it over and over when no one else could see me. I always came alone. The truth was, I had no husband. He told the truth, the real part of my life, the one I tried to hide, but he looked right through me and met me where I was. He wasn't ashamed of me. He wasn't angry. In my life, I thought I'd experienced love. I thought I was pretty good at finding it too. I didn't even know what love was. On an ordinary day, I went to draw water and had a thirst quenched I didn't even know I had. I don't know if they'll believe me, but I gotta try. I gotta tell them. I found 
the Messiah. Rather, he found me. That's what John is highlighting here, isn't he? Look at that verse in 14 again. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to us, the Savior of the world. The yard sign that John is wanting to put up here, I think the third is, as recipients of God's love, we have no choice but to show love. And we have to ask ourselves, how can anyone look at all the Lord has done, who he is, and not be lost in the love of God? (laughs) How can any hatred remain in us knowing that As John has indicated, this is true love. How can we do anything but love one another as we contemplate such amazing love? (laughs) This is love. And as John spells this out for his recipients, he says, I want you to see this is what the Father has done for us. He is the source of love. He has loved us when we didn't deserve it. And it is our obligation now thus to love one another. He then begins to spell out some results of love, starting in verse 15. If anyone confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God resides or abides in him, and he is in God And we have come to know and to believe that God has in us, that God is in us. And then he repeats it, God is love. And the one who resides in love resides in God, and God resides in him. And then he repeats another phrase, by this, this love is perfected within us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because just as Jesus is, so also we are in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears punishment has been perfected, has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The results of love first is there's fellowship with the Lord. We've been already talking about this and that fellowship is based there in verse 14 if we've made that confession. Where are you this morning? Do you know Jesus Christ as your savior? Is he some guru that you've heard a lot about? He's a nice guy, but that's not my thing. Then you don't know this love. (laughs) Like the Samaritan woman, she had no idea what it meant that the savior of the world would love her so. John 3, 16, you could easily place your name. For God so loved David. For God so loved Place your name in the spot that he gave his son. John Stott states it well. The theology which robs Christ of his Godhead, robs God of the glory of his love, and robs man of the one belief that generates a perfect love within him. The confession brings us a complete and effective relationship. One he's referred to twice as Perfected, God's love poured out into our hearts via the Holy Spirit is manifested in an intimate relationship with him. 
That's why he wrote what he did in chapter one. I I want you to have this fellowship that we have with the Lord. A fellowship that invites you to sit at God's table, to bask in his presence, to have coffee or tea with the Lord, to witness his goodness, his grace, and his power. And true love allows us to have that fellowship. Secondly, it gives us confidence. You notice what he said in verse 17? We have confidence in the day of judgment. We have confidence when Christ returns. What he means here, he's not talking about whether or not I'm saved. No, 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 no. He's talking about the evaluation of our lives for reward. And we stand before him. We know he loves us. We know that we love him. And that provides us with confidence before him. In fact, he says, there is no fear in love. Now, I grant you, he's talking about the end, but there's also ramifications even for now. Now, fear is used two different ways in scripture. It can refer to reverence or awe of God. That's what we all are to have. But there's also a fear of alarm, dread, that God might just take out a paddle and whack us upside the head. He says, you don't have to worry about that because God loves you. He did all this for you. He's invited you into fellowship with him. And so thus, there is no fear in true love. Perfect love, he says, drives out fear. I love what John states here in verse 17. Just as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. We are the likeness of his love. And the intimacy that was not forfeited by Christ on earth is the same intimacy we can have with the Lord. Why? Because one, fear is driven away. We can run to the Lord and find comfort. We can run to the Lord and find peace and joy. And we needn't fear what Satan can hurl at us because we belong to the Lord. (laughs) Reminds me of Johnny in the playground and Bobby gets lippy with him and Johnny says, careful, my dad will beat you up. That's our debt. He rejoices over us with gladness. He, he brings us in this all-powerful and sovereign one. Whom shall we fear? <laughs> he loves us. He loved us to such great lengths that he sent his own son so we could be brought in and be fathered by him. I love Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The results of true love is not only fellowship, it's not only confidence before the Lord, but it also is action, which we've seen. And he highlights this in verse 19. We love, the we again is emphatic, we love, why? Because he first, it, it's he who took the initiative because he first loved us. Some of you know there's a stained glass window in the new building in the foyer and on the horizontal beam of the cross, it says we love because he first loved us. <laughs> I love it. That's, that's it in a nutshell. It's in verse 19. In fact, failure to love others, I would argue, is in gratitude to the Lord for the love he has extended to us. In fact, John states that if, if you, can't, you, you, you can't say you love the Lord and dislike 
your fellow brother or sister. Notice John uses some very harsh words here. Notice what he says in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a liar. In other words, (laughs) you're not of the Lord, because the father of lies is Satan. It is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. But if we fail in the easier task, it's absurd to think that we can claim success in the harder. We're abiding in Christ. He reminds us of that. And you cannot be a part of something and hate other parts. It doesn't work. And I love CBF. I'm preaching to the choir today. I mean, our our mission statement is to love God and love others. And you do it so well. But let me remind you to keep it up. Because loving others is not static. We cannot let down the guard. Because sure as a world, this week, there'll be someone who you just want to run over with the lawnmower. Right? There's the grudges, there's the gospel, the gossip, there's the critical spirit, there's jealousy, there's fraud, there's slander, there's divisiveness, and none of this is part of God's family, or shouldn't be. It doesn't mean there isn't tough love. It doesn't mean there's not confrontations. It doesn't mean that we hold each other accountable and have discipline. That is part of love. But we respond with a teachable spirit. We respond with grace, intentionality, and a desire to walk in unity. It means opening up not just our homes, but our lives, being vulnerable. I mean, think about Christ on earth. What did he do to love? (laughs) He had the fish dinners. He ate the falafels. He hung out late. He, He let unclean people touch him. He met a Samaritan woman when no Jew would have ever met a Samaritan woman, let alone ask for a cup of water. In a book written by Jerry Lineman entitled, Why Do We Feel Lonely at Church? He states, a deep connected life with others requires a new set of priorities and a new set of life rhythms. Let's face it, the greatest commodity that we have, I think, in this day and age is not money, it's time. And that is a hard thing. And our busyness, which I think sometimes Satan uses to keep us from loving God and loving others. And we've got to be intentional in utilizing that rare commodity for God's glory. He's not done. In this understanding of true love in verse one of chapter five, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been, notice this, fathered by God. And everyone who loves the father loves the chips off the old block, right? They love the children fathered by him. By this, we know we love the children of God. Watch this. Whether we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments do not weigh us down because everyone who's been fathered by God conquers the world. We've already been reminded as 
that the love of God requires that we keep his obedience. In fact, Jesus said in John 15, if you obey my commands, you remain in my love. And since we are all fathered by the Lord, we, we need to be in loving one another. If we love God and walk in obedience, then we know that loving the children of God is vital. John has already highlighted loving God is loving others and obeying God requires us to love one another. They go hand in hand. It's like pancakes and syrup, biscuits and gravy, bread and butter. You gotta have them. They go together. This is the love of God. It's a selfless love that obeys. And I don't know about you, when I hear that, that's really heavy. Because I suspect you have people that come to mind that, <clears throat> Lord, you know what you're really asking of me? <laughs> I can love you. That's easy. You're lovable. But he or she over here, mm. and John knew that. Because notice what John states. His commands do not weigh us down. Why? Because everyone who's been fathered by God conquers the world. Our faith is the key to this victory. Appreciation of the power of Christ allows us victory over our old self, the world, and Satan. And this power grants us intimacy with our loving Lord and the ability to love others. It's part of God's plan. And what do we know about God's plan? Romans 12. What the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. That's God. So the fourth principle there in your notes, in case we think that the call to love others is too burdensome, we must not forget that our strength, encouragement, and comfort comes from our all-loving and all-powerful Lord. It is he who gives us the victory. And so, CBF, church family, we are called to live out the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love one another as yourself. A commandment we seek to embody as a church family because as I stated, our mission statement is to love God and love others. Why? <laughs> because he first loved us. Father, we marvel. Time and time again, we stand in awe of you. Your grace, your mercy, even your discipline is all couched in love. For indeed, you are a loving God. And it's so beautifully depicted at Calvary when your son came and died on a cross for us. And as John highlights the enormous and glorious ramifications of being brought into fellowship, of <clears throat> the opportunity to have fellowship with others, we're reminded of the need to also love others well. Lord, all of this is possible. The, the, the opportunity to know your love, to bask in your presence, the opportunity to even love others is because of the blood of Christ that was shed. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the blood that has been applied. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.